Hi there, Alpaca Pals. You're listening to Alpaca My Bags. This is the podcast where we talk travel through a critical lens. And today we are chatting about how to travel with sustainability in mind. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, I'd actually recommend that you go back and listen to the episode right before this one, because this is the second part of a two-part series on sustainable travel. In part one, we chatted with Evelina Uderdahl. She's an environmentalist, climate activist, and sustainable traveler who gave up flying when she realized how bad it was for our climate. In part one, we covered the impact of flying and what travelers can do to help. Now, Evelina is back to chat with us about other elements of travel and climate activism around the world. So let's dive in. There's actually a very interesting case that I came across when I was in East Timor, which is one of the countries with with the least amount of tourists in the world. I think they have like 60,000 international visitors, whereas like 5,000 of them are tourists every year, which is like nothing. And there was uh, a place where we stayed, a small like bed and breakfast and close to that area I was told that there was a used to be a big resort but as with this case like all the tourists just stayed there and ate there and like no money was given to the actual people who lived in that village so the government came in and helped the locals in that village to open up small restaurants and uh, bed and breakfasts and stuff and also with you know the prices being so much better mm. uh, eventually that resort went bankrupt ah. so now the only option for people who travel there is to stay with the locals so all the money from the tourists go to the locals yeah I think we're seeing that shift as well in Cuba um, Cuba is a really popular destination for Canadians obviously it's really accessible yeah. and short flight unfortunately but um and not any americans not any americans <laughs> that's what sorry honestly just, no i know that i've been told that that's why canadians yeah do. i'm yeah it's true i'm sorry to our american <laughs> listeners um, it's like a little canadian haven in cuba on the resorts but um this is something i've noticed is like canadians don't realize that there's so much more to see in cuba beyond the resorts when i was in cuba i left the resort and backpacked around the island and it was a completely different experience and i think this points to again the mentality and comfort element of the way that we like live our lives and the way that we travel which is that people go to resorts because it's familiar and comfortable and like that's just what you do but they don't think about how pushing your boundaries a little bit could really like open up a world of experiences because like Cuba off resort was completely different it was like really amazing to actually enter the culture in a way that you can't when you're on resort and talk to real people and give your money to real people and support the local economies But I think that that is starting to change in Cuba. It's becoming more of an accessible destination and people are starting to realize, okay, like, I don't have to stay on this resort. There are Canadians that I talk to that literally think they can't leave the resort. And also with a lot of these resorts, 
you could literally be like anywhere in the world. They all kind of look the same. Mm -hmm. And so you could literally be anywhere. You don't really see much of the place. Yeah, I mean, you see maybe a beach and maybe go on trip somewhere, but Mm -hmm. you don't see the country or the town. I also wanted to ask you about this campaign that I remember you ran on your Instagram. Everyone should follow Evelina's Instagram. It's amazing. We'll leave the uh, handle in the show notes. But um, it was a campaign where you wore the same dress for 30 days straight. Can you talk a little bit about this and like what the goal of the campaign was? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a campaign. And I'm so shocked of how big this has gotten. Like it's the most read blog post I've written, basically. And people are still talking about it and referring to it. I had no idea it was going to blow up. It was, I mean, a big part of it was just for me to try out what it's like not having to spend any time wondering like what to wear. Mm. I mean, I guess just kind of get back to it because, um, I mean, I only buy secondhand. I don't buy anything like newly produced, but I have started getting into kind of a shopaholic behavior with secondhand. Mm. which I mean even if yeah I mean it's secondhand so it's more sustainable but behavior is not and I guess I just kind of wanted to take a break to realize okay I don't need that much I mean it's one of my favorite dresses I still use it all the time yeah um but a lot of people are surprised oh the dress like it's like they thought I would be tired of it or something, but yeah. it's one of my favorites. I'm going to keep it for as long as it's, you know, mendable. Yeah. Um, was it, um, did it feel like really freeing to not wonder, like to just wake up every day and know, oh, I'm going to wear this and never have to put any energy towards that? Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Because I was going to say, and this is something, this is something that I like, have appreciated about my own traveling I've done like long trips so up to like nine months where obviously you know you live out of a backpack so I had like very few things and I found that like so empowering um on these long trips to just like have a small backpack and these are my belongings and this is all I I all I'm gonna wear I don't have to think about like what I'm gonna wear today it's just whatever's in this backpack and I remember coming back like every time I've come back from a long trip like that I feel kind of overwhelmed at the amount of stuff that like I have and by Canadian standards I live a pretty like minimalist life I have a tiny apartment and I don't have a lot of things compared to like other people that I know but I still find it kind of overwhelming And I think that a lot of people, like, don't understand that mentality that, like, having things is kind of stressful. Like, why do we do this? It's just like capitalism. Yeah. And I mean, especially since, you know, Instagram and social media where people have new clothes all the time. And I mean, I remember back when I was in school, when I was younger, it was like, oh, you couldn't wear the same thing two days in a row. Yeah, it's just like I ridiculous. That too. Um, I do it all the time now, though. Just, like I go to work wearing the same clothes because no one cares. That's yeah. the thing. Like once you start to do it, you realize like I'm pretty sure my colleagues don't notice that I wear literally the same clothes all week. Yeah, 
Okay, so I wanted to ask you, I know you're involved with Extinction Rebellion. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about the organization? What do you want to know? It's it's uh, such a big one. Yeah, well, question, our but... listeners probably haven't heard of it. So if you want to explain like what the organization is doing. Okay, so it's an environmental movement and it's com- completely like decentralized. So it's not like some people are running it. It's literally like meant for anywhere, anyone anywhere to start it in their town. Um, and the focus is like we have three demands, which is the focus. And that is to um, get the government to declare um, a climate emergency and to set up goals to be uh, carbon neutral by 2025. And then to uh, number two is to tell the truth. So for the governments and the media to tell people honestly, like how bad it is, because a lot, I mean, most people have no idea how much of a crap hole we're in, like Mm -hmm. we're in big trouble Uh, and they need to be honest about that. And the third one is to uh, start a citizens assembly to basically strengthen the democracy and get like all kinds of people in to kind of say you know, their thoughts of it. Because in a lot of places, um, politicians are like, not like real people, I was going to say, but like they've never had the struggles of being like, you know, working class or having a normal job. So just to kind of being able to get the perspectives and stuff of all people from all different kinds of um you know, backgrounds. Um, so those are the three demands. And I think one of the things that makes it, um, because this has, I mean, this movement has grown so much in like, it's just over a year since it started. And I think one of the things that makes it so interesting for people to join, because a lot of people who have never done any kind of activism, join Extinction Rebellion. Um, and we are very strict on fact that, that like no shaming on the individual. Like it's the system that is broken and together we need to kind of like force and push that change of the system by the governments. So like the technique that we use is uh, non-violent civil disobedience and the way they kind of because it started with I think it was 15 different uh, environmental activists who've been activists for so many years like we're talking 20 or more years some of them and they were from different kind of groups and stuff and they came together and was like nothing works we're still in the shit we need to get together and figure out and they did so much research looking into uh, different movements in history to see what has worked and uh, they came to the conclusion that nonviolent civil disobedience is what works best. So they were looking at the civil rights movement and they were looking at women's rights to vote like the suffragettes and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of worked. And now that you're saying that, like when I think about examples, that is typically the case is that it's been civil disobedience. 
Um, And this is something that like, it's interesting you bring it up because I'm sure you remember in the fall, like the early fall, there were a lot of like climate change protests. And there was a massive one here in Toronto. And I found it like a little disheartening because it was one day of protesting. But amongst my group of friends, we were discussing how it was organized and planned with the city. It wasn't disobedient. And so it didn't really have any impact. Sure, it was on the news, but like for it to really work, we thought, why can't all the people that came out on this one day split up and every single day block an intersection in the city? That will have like actual tangible impact because it actually disrupts city life. Whereas this one organized parade isn't yeah. really like people have forgotten about it now. Oh yeah, I remember it. That's where uh, <laughs> your uh, president <laughs> went on there, and you're like, "Wait a minute, does he not realize that like they're marching for him yeah. to make changes? Like, is yeah. he marching against himself? <laughs> like what? <laughs> like he actually has." The power to change things? Yeah. Why doesn't he just, like, skip the march and go to work and, like... Yeah, do his job. Do those fucking changes? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Um, so that is what Extinction Rebellion does. Yeah. Um, so we've had a couple of, like, big international actions, like rebels. I mean, it is a start, and others have followed, like, the, the EU uh, just declared uh, climate emergency too, like a week ago or something. There definitely are changes. Yeah. I was wondering, do you want to talk to her about um, carbon offsetting? Yeah. Yeah. Katie's wondering how you feel about carbon offsetting. I guess this is oh, like a new yeah. trend that people are doing. Um, so basically, when you book a flight, you can pay to carbon exactly. offset. Um, which is, from what I've read, you're essentially just making a donation to an organization that's like working on sustainability or like planting trees. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, is it worth investing in that if you have to fly? Or do you think it's just like a way for us to create an excuse? So I think that's a great question. And I get this all the time. Um, so what a lot of people don't understand uh, is that you can't really offset it. Like when you fly, those emissions are released, those greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere. And by offsetting, it doesn't suck those greenhouse gases back. It's just that you kind of, yeah, like you say, it, you donate to a cost that either puts money to uh, plant trees or to... Um, like put money into renewable energy projects and stuff. And I think that if you have to fly, then yeah, you should do it. Like there shouldn't be an option. And I think also that will make the prices of planes more expensive, which they should be. And one of the reasons that, which a lot of people don't know, the reason that planes are so freaking cheap is because they don't pay tax on the fuel. Oh. Yeah. So that's why the prices can be so freaking cheap because they don't ta- tax on the jet fuel. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if I think that if it becomes so that you kind of have to do carbon offsetting when you fly, the prices will become, you know, more more accurate than they are now. Because yeah. it's not that trains or buses are so expensive; it's that the the flights are too cheap. I think that's But, the case in Europe. It might not be here. I'd say, like, I know a lot of Canadians who haven't flown, and I think this is a geo geographical difference because yeah. I think in Europe, like, it's more common to fly, especially the short haul flights, because they are so accessible financially. In Canada, though, like, I could name several people who've never flown just because flying here is much more expensive. It's It's not considered like financially accessible to most people, but on that note, like maybe one solution is that carbon offsetting be rolled into the price of flying globally, so that it makes it less accessible. It's almost like the approach, you know, that they took with cigarettes, which was make it more expensive and people won't do it anymore. So if yeah. you rolled in like the carbon offset um, price into flights. It would be like an inescapable fee that you have to pay. Yeah, but then like it is complicated because even even if you do offset, there is no guarantee that it will like work. Right. Would you say like um, if you uh, put money into tree planting, first of all you need to make sure that it's like a good organization because some just plant trees that grow fast in places where they're not native. So it completely disrupts the ecosystem there. Um, but there are some programs like I give monthly to one that uh, plants in places uh, where it will help the local village. So it will help uh, for floods and droughts, it will help them financially as well. Um, but, you know, there could be fires. So they all disappear and then release that uh, carbon dioxide instead. There's no way to guarantee that those money will actually, you know, be part of it. So mm. by doing it, you can't undo the emissions that you've done. But I think everyone who has the financial ability, whether I feel like whether they fly or not, if you have extra money, put that into places where it can actually help the environment. Like I donate a lot of money each month and like I don't have a lot of money, but I still give some every Every month, I write for this company that's called Go Climate Neutral, where people and companies can basically carbon offset their whole lifestyle. Mm. So you pay off of your lifestyle. So if you fly, if you have a car, what kind of diet you have and stuff, and then depending on that, you pay a small amount. So then you just pay every month. And yeah, I mean, for privileged people who have the money, we really should do that. Mm -hmm. um, but There's a risk that some people feel like carbon offsetting their flights makes up for it, which it doesn't. Yeah, there seems to be a disconnect sometimes where the issue is too simplistic, that people see that as a solution without realizing that it's actually just a band-aid for the problem. Exactly. Um, that in many ways I think is designed to make us feel better about the fact that we are flying. And maybe this is a good question for you. Sometimes I think that travel 
is it's just like so inherently privileged and maybe there's no way to be a responsible traveler like responsible in the sense like to our environment like is there any way that you can travel the world and not I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that ultimately it's just bad like long-haul travel for yeah. the environment I mean it is but if I want to say like if there's anything I want to leave with the people who are listening to this I would say like take a look at your backyard if you look at the place where you're living like your country or just the area if you start if you start researching and you know reach out to the tourist information for examples or try to find local travel bloggers who've been there and try to see these places from a tourist perspective you know there are so many places that you probably haven't been there close by and you will probably be very surprised and impressed and i cannot recommend more to you know see explore and appreciate your own home country you know there's so many people do it that they travel far away when they think of traveling and then take their own home for granted Mm -hmm. because it's always going to be there but I feel like start by seeing your own place first and explore that you know it, it will make you see your surroundings on everyday life in a different way when you start viewing it more as this I don't know like magical or beautiful or amazing place yeah I think that there (laughs) sorry I could go on forever but I think like you've touched on something that is like inherent to the way that we travel and like the way that we view it which is that we think of travel as going somewhere exotic and foreign and like that's the only way travel can be And maybe it's about just like shifting the way we view it to like seeing our own country as something that is worth traveling and something that can be exotic and foreign in some ways. Like especially in Canada, like this this country is very diverse and I think people need to see that as exciting and that as something that's worth exploring. But we're obsessed with this like, oh, I have to go far away to this completely different place where they speak a different language and have a different climate to feel like I've traveled. In chatting with Evelina, I started to think about how shifting to more sustainable resources and lifestyles is really about human comfort in a way. We're all creatures of habit. And changing our habits can be really tough. For example, I've been trying lately to use linen bags for fresh produce at the grocery store instead of the plastic bags that they provide. At first, it was really tough to remember to bring the linen bags with me to the grocery store. I had to actively remind myself every single week not to forget them. But now, it's become habit. I don't even have to think about grabbing the linen bags when I head out to shop. The point I'm making here is that embracing sustainable living takes work. It takes work to shift our habits and our attitudes. But if you're willing to put in the work to make that shift, 
sustainable habits organically become the norm. To hash out this idea a little bit more, I reached out to Greg Hill. Greg is an epic backcountry Canadian skier, climber, and all-round adventurer. He has hundreds of first descents around his home range in British Columbia, Canada, as well as South America, Norway, and Pakistan. Okay, so for all us non-skiers, a first descent is a really big deal. It means that a skier has been the first to ski a particular hill. For decades, nature has provided Greg the opportunity to adventure in the mountains. In one article linked in the show notes, he explains how in recent years, he developed a sense of guilt about how he's engaged with the nature that he loves. He drove a massive diesel truck to get to the trailheads, and he used snowmobiles to get to backcountry areas. And of course, he was a frequent flyer. But in recent years, Greg became aware of the impact his adventuring was having on the planet, and he decided it was time to change. So he began to look for new ways to adventure that don't contribute as many emissions. For example, now he only drives an electric car. Hey, Katie. Yeah? Guess what? What? We have a sponsor. What? First sponsor ever. Okay, here's the real question. Did you know that toothpaste tubes end up in landfills? I did know this. Yeah, and once they're there, they take a very, very, very long time to biodegrade. And the thing about it is once it does break down, it's just in smaller particles. It's not actually gone. No. So toothpaste tubes, not a good thing. This is why when Toothbites by Oxygenate reached out to us, we were like, sure, we'll feature you on our sustainability episodes because we think what you're doing is great. Um, So they're addressing this problem by making a toothpaste tablet that's made with natural ingredients and it comes in zero waste packaging. Um, Have you ever used a toothpaste tablet before, Katie? I have once before. It was a new experience, but... I didn't hate it. Yeah, it is different. I think it's like one of those things where you're just, you grew up your entire life using like toothpaste in the traditional way. And so using a chewable tablet is just, it's abnormal. It's, it takes getting used to. And I will say it's great for travel. I'm going to be bringing them on my trip to India in May. I'm super excited because I think it'll take up less space and it'll be easier to get through the airport with tablets instead of a paste. Anyways, so you pop it in your mouth, you give it a quick chew. And then you brush away as per normal. So Oxygenate created Toothbites because they wanted to oxygenate the earth by minimizing waste. In fact, they told me that their goal is to help prevent 74.82 million toothpaste tubes from ending up in Canadian landfills. So, Canadian Alpaca Pals, head over to www.oxygenate.ca to order your zero-waste Toothbites today. Katie, you're happy? I'm happy. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll record the intro later and we can just dive right in. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for coming on Alpaca My Bags. No problem. I look forward to chatting. So do you want to start just by telling us about um, yourself and your relationship to nature? Yeah, my name is Greg Hill. I've been an outdoorsy person for as long as I can think. I grew up in southern Quebec in the Appalachians, and ever since then, I've just loved nature. We lived, you know, a kilometer or two from our nearest neighbors. We had an endless backyard of forests and hills, and, I mean, it definitely turned me into somebody who really appreciates the outdoors. 
Um, I moved out west when I was about 19 or 20 and started really pursuing more adventurous sides of rock climbing and, and backcountry skiing in my early 20s. And, and since then, I've kind of set myself apart as just a, a, an endurance junkie, mountain climber, adventurer. I was going to say the best way I can think of to describe you seems to be as an adventurer because you do all these different sports and activities. Um, and so where along this Sport, way... It's not just, just, just adventure. There's no doubt there's article writing, there's photography, filming, editing, oh, yeah. story creation. It's, it's actually, it's, it's exciting in that respect because it's not just a physical thing. It's a lot of mental um, challenges and things that you can keep, keep entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have friends in the skiing community out West, and that's how I ended up finding you. Um, so I know a little bit about what it's like to be a pro skier because I have friends who are sponsored and they know the whole side, like everything that goes into that in terms of building. A friend of mine was explaining it to me like you are building a brand in a sense and you need to be able to communicate and be professional. Um but on the flip side, us viewers just see you skiing and having fun. So there's definitely many, many elements to that job, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fun. Like I say, I mean, it's, it's engaging. If it was just a physical thing, I'd probably be bored by now. But um, all the other sides keep it really interesting. Yeah. Um, so at what point on this journey did environmentalism start become something that you were thinking about like in relation to your work? Um, for years, I understood the hypocrisy of what I was doing. I had a big truck, I had a snowmobile, I was heli guiding, and I knew that there was this kind of terrible. I was in a terrible situation where that I was doing what I loved, but what I, the way I was doing it was killing what I loved. So it, it definitely weighed on me. Um, my brother is named Graham Hill. He started a, a green website called Tree Hugger, and um, you know grew into a very big website and. Uh, you know, he was always pushing that stuff, but I, so I was thinking about it, but I wasn't ready. And even in 2010, he did a TED talk on weekday vegetarianism, which is a really great way to limit your footprint. And, um, you know, it, it was a fantastic idea, but I wasn't ready to adopt it then. And even to the point where when he'd come over and stay over, we'd kind of make sure we cook some meat during the week just to, just to bug him. But, um, but yeah, it's all, it's always been there. And I mean, I just, there weren't, there weren't a lot of options if I wanted to continue doing what I was doing. And, you know, I basically tried in 2012, I biked to all my summits for a month, and um, but nobody was joining me because I was biking the trailheads, and they were driving by because it was really, it was far, the trailheads, and they'd drive by with a spare seat in their car, and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't something that was going to be adoptable by most people, and it just seemed, it seemed a little silly. It was awesome. I loved it, but it wasn't something that would ever catch on, so just kind of been waiting until there were options, and finally we're at a point where there's all these electrical options coming out and that's it's allowing us to reinvent the outdoors a little bit. At what point did you start thinking about other changes? It sounds like in 2012 you were already thinking about it, but when did you start like really practicing and what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, it really all started. I mean, I got my, my, I started my electric adventures in May, 2017 and by electric adventures. It's uh, using electrical cars, not using fossil fuels to access my trailheads. Um, and it, it started then, and, and the, that the, getting that vehicle, getting that car, that electric car, it became a vehicle for my change because all of a sudden it was this cool idea and I was doing it, but once I would be driving it, I'd start thinking, well, this is cool, but what else can I do? And it kind of just started gaining momentum from there until the point where I'm, I hate plastic. 
trying to figure out how to buy local as much as possible and fly as little as possible all the other aspects of being an environmentalist these days so i've checked out the website electric adventures what is the like is it an organization can you tell us more about it no it's just me <laughs> <laughs> wish it was an organization no that's just a website i started to start you know i actually the blog i never really took off with it because i was busy but no it was just a way to share the adventures and so that people could actually see that it was a possibility you know and see that adventures lifestyle is still possible even though I'm not in the big vehicle, I'm actually in a little hatchback. And there's this image of the outdoorsy person out here that they've got the truck, they've got the snowmobile, and they're they're as rad as their vehicle. You know, you've got the rad vehicles, you're a rad individual. And um, I kind of break away from that and go with this little tiny little hatchback electrical car and still do rad things. So it's it's uh, I mean it's it's been lots of fun, but for sure when you look at it, you're like, really, that's an adventure mobile. <laughs> it's funny you're saying that the last time I was at West my friends and I my friend does have like a big rig and she drives it like a boss and we would just laugh because every time we were in public with other people we'd hear people talking about her rig and I'm in Toronto obviously so very much a city person but I would laugh about how that was so BC that everyone in BC is just always talking about their trucks no absolutely yeah. I mean, it does. It's what you drive identifies as who you are, sort of thing. It's an expression of yourself. So, yeah, if you want to be rad, you got to have a rad vehicle. Um, but yeah, I've kind of been trying to denature that a bit and make it acceptable to just have little dinky cars as long as the adventures are rad. It doesn't matter what you're driving. Totally. Um, but is it challenging driving an electric car out there? Like, I feel like there would be a lot of hurdles to that. Yeah, I mean, when I first started, the infrastructure was terrible. Driving to Vancouver was a challenge. Now there's chargers everywhere. Um, it's still, you know, this is my third winter, and I can't tell you that I'm super excited to for winter to be here. I mean, it, my, I, I lose my range. I, it's a small little car. You know, I look forward to the Rivian truck that I daydream about that's like 4 by 4 badass vehicle. But, um, I mean, yeah, I, my trailhead access, you know, it kind of, by hitting that car, I limited a lot of my trailheads because I can't snowmobile up up the roads to get further and deeper so i've kind of limited my circle of adventure but it's been fine i'm definitely looking forward to evolving it to the electric snowmobile behind the bigger electric vehicle and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um and how is it being received out there like are other adventurists following suit um one of my direct oh mike douglas the godfather of skiing free skiing he just uh, he's got an electric car now and it's catching on and there's definitely the more I, I get out there and do talks and stuff, the more people come up to me afterwards and like, hey, I, you know, I saw you talk a year ago. I've got an electric car. And it's been super fun. And, um, you know, I don't know if electric cars are the answer, but right now they're definitely they're definitely a, a, a good direction we should be investing in. Um, and you know, it's definitely catching on. Once you convert somebody, they're they become a, a preacher for it because they're just really fun to drive. You, you feel better. I call it the electric smile. It's just like when you're driving it, you're charging with renewable electricity. You just kind of know that it, it's a lot better than the other options. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, um, in your opinion, what travelers can do to minimize their ecological impact when they themselves go adventuring. So for example, I travel a lot internationally, but I also love to hike at home in Canada. Um, 
that's something I do internationally as well. So like when I backpacked in Asia, for example, I was trekking in every single country I went to. So I think like our experience as hikers here in Canada is super relevant to people who are traveling elsewhere in the world. Um, mm -hmm. So in my research, I discovered that a lot of seemingly harmless activities while hiking can have pretty extreme environmental consequences. Um, so I was hoping we could talk if, about a few of these things. Um, one of them, for example, is off-trail hiking. Um, I've noticed a lot of people don't understand why this is a bad thing. They're on a trail and they think, oh, like, why can't I just walk out into this direction to go look at something? Um, yeah, so it causes damage to vegetation, it disrupts wildlife, and it increases muddiness, and it widens trails, um, which long-term can have quite a severe impact um the other thing is building fires um it could be that you're stripping an area of valuable nutrients for wildlife and other vegetation you can also be removing what might be a living creature's home um, those are just two things that i've been thinking about that are important to consider as a hiker no matter where you are in the world um did you have anything you wanted to add yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's a, it's a challenge. I think, you know, hardscapes are better. So you can get up the alpine, you can go from rock to rock. It's a lot better than chomping through the wildflowers. But, I mean, it's so true. It's it's just so tempting to always go for that extra view or go to that other angle. And I don't, I don't know how you'd ever suppress that in people. We kind of always want to go a bit further and feel like we're on our own trails. But, um we are fortunate here at least that most of the national parks to hike in the trails go to where you want to go to and you don't need to really go off them which is great but i mean for sure i do i do whenever i'm going to do something that's not normally done i'm chomping through the forest and, and and kicking up moss and things that have taken 10 20 years to grow um it's it's pretty hard to avoid i don't know how you could mm -hmm. um and in terms of fires yeah i mean your, your point's bang on but what's camping without fires yeah, I know. I was reading actually about like really interesting um, devices you can buy now um, that you can use to just like have your own portable fire rather than building a fire out of vegetation. So I think like mm -hmm. as technology improves, we're going to find ways around these issues. But then there's also the issue of like, okay, not everyone can afford an electric car right now. Not everyone can afford like all these cool camping tools um, that mm. theoretically are better for our environment. Um, so I think there's like disparity between what's accessible and what isn't for people who want to enjoy nature, especially here in Canada. I think a lot of us that are enjoy nature are in the upper middle class. And yes, things cost more, you know, if you want to eat organic, if you want to have a, anything environmental seems to cost more. But I feel like we are the ones that are in the position to have this extra free time to do things, and we should be a bit more responsible in our actions and kind of do as best as possible. And then eventually everything will get cheaper for, you know, down the road. Mm -hmm. the but it is. I mean, to, to be better costs more, no matter what. It's, it's definitely one of the conundrums. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what to say about the forest, the fires and the trails. It's just it's a reality, but, it, you know try to educate people to, to like, I just did a hiking guide exam in the spring and that was one of the main things. It's like how to, how to camp with the lightest footprint possible, how to filter your, how your food gunk and just how to leave a place as pristine as when you first found it. 
Mm-hmm. Do you have other tips you can share about how to do that? Um, well, that was that was tough. I mean, like I said, hardscapes so of rocks and all that stuff. So you kind of, in the end, you, you end up camping a little bit more uncomfortably because you're trying not to just flatten all those beautiful flowers. And I mean, yeah, it, you know, carrying your poop is a big issue, but you know, digging a, um, a cat trap or whatever, like a deep hole down into the active soil and depositing it there and covering it back up as best as possible. You know, that that's fantastic. We just did a kayaking trip in the in the fall. And it's this—it's the Kootenai River. It's—it's rapid a ton, and there, it, I was blown away that there was no actual toilets that were developed, set up in all these camp spots that gets used regularly, and there was poop everywhere, and it was really—it was really hard to see. I, I feel like you know we all have to band together to create the options to give that. You know, I can't believe over all the years nobody's put a toilet in a bunch of those camp spots. You know, yeah. at least to like concentrate the issue instead of having poop everywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was actually something I was googling about how human human waste is actually such a bad thing out in nature and yet all of us when we're out in nature we're like oh it's so natural for us to do this but in reality it's yeah. not like we used to dig holes <laughs> and we should still be doing that when we're out in nature yeah absolutely doing that doing that course with the guides exam was definitely reaffirmed to me that okay I'll spend the extra minute to dig a hole and Put it 20 centimeters down it's not like it's that hard and at least it's all nice and buried and the microbes will get to it quickly quickly yeah yeah this one is like so obvious but packing in and packing out um yeah. especially like i've noticed it. like canadians are pretty good with that but when i've hiked abroad i do notice like in a lot of places that people leave behind a lot of garbage um which is unfortunate to see yeah, and there's that Swedish term plugging that's that's gaining momentum, which is great, where you're out jogging and you pick up litter. Yeah, that's such a good idea. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's hard to imagine that people are out there in nature and then willingly just tossing their stuff away, but they do. So I guess those of us that care need to pick it up. Yeah, I actually stayed, um, while I was in Cambodia, I stayed on a remote island where I was just like living in this treehouse essentially and... Um, There was no Wi-Fi, no electricity, so it was very off-grid. But on this island, they would have garbage washing up all the time, like every single day with the tide. And so they had a deal with people who were staying in these uh, treehouse cabin things that if you spent your day picking up garbage and throwing it into bags, they would give you a beer per bag. And so it was really great incentive because all day long you have nothing to do. So we were just like cleaning up the island for beer. And I thought it was so genius. Like what a great way to incentivize travelers to do something productive with their time and clean up the island. But I also, I think you hit on a point there is that we're not willing to do anything unless there's some sort of reward. Yeah. The emotional reward of picking up that garbage isn't enough. We actually need to incentivize it everything because because yeah we're just all lazy and we want something for all of our actions so mm-hmm. it's a tough one and I think it's complicated because a lot of people don't think um, long term I think it's very hard for people to recognize the severity of this issue because they aren't seeing evidence of it yet and so mm-hmm. people don't feel like it's an issue because when they look around them they're not seeing the evidence and so I think a lot of it is about education and just getting people to think about this problem in 
in a long-term scope rather than just like based on what they're seeing around them in their day-to-day experience. Yeah, especially, I mean, we all love to recycle. I wash all our chip bags, everything, and I put them in recycling. I go and I separate them. But then, I don't know if you read that CBC article where like one third of those actual recycling things made it anywhere. A bunch of them made it into the garbage and some of them made it onto a boat, who knows. But yeah, um, yeah, we almost would be better if we just piled our stuff in front of our houses to really see it. Instead of I feel guilt-free when I put it in recycling and then I realize that it's actually not getting recycled. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One thing that we found surprising that um, Katie and I had been researching about was banana peels. Um, I think that it's like such a myth that throwing your banana peels or like any kind of organic matter is okay when you're um, Mm -hmm. out in the woods. And so, I don't know, I thought that was just such an interesting point, like that, no, like packing in and packing out means really everything. Anything that you bring in needs to come back out with you. It doesn't matter if it's organic matter or not. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I was guilty as anyone for just throwing my organics out, but uh, I've definitely turned the corner and I'm way better at bringing it back. But for years there, I'd be like, oh, of course, it's just, we're in nature. Nature's going to deal with it. It's nature. It's yeah. natural, but not so much. So do you get the impression that um, things are shifting in your area in BC, that um, adventurous and travelers and visitors are putting more effort towards um, sustainable travel and adventure. Whether whether the actual tourists are, I'm not I'm not sure yet. But definitely the locals. I mean, our protect our winters is pushing quite hard, and there's definitely a lot of local people. We're all standing up and talking and trying to figure out solutions because the tourists will take the solutions once we offer them to them. But I don't think they're quite looking for them yet because they don't expect them. So I'm hoping that we can kind of come up with some good options, and then eventually they just they just take them because they're there. And um, what does Protect Our Winters do? Protect Our Winters is a, a climate advocacy group that's it has been going on in the States for over 10 years, but in Canada we just started about a year ago. And part of it is education, teaching students how what it's all about and the science behind climate change. And then there's kind of three pillars, and then there's making it cool to care because using all sorts of ambassadors in the outdoor community to show that we care and to act act against it. And then ideally, once once the membership is big enough, is to actually push policy. Because uh, as much as individuals can do, we need to change policy. We need to put restrictions on the big companies because they are the worst. So, um, yeah, it's kind of it's just in its infancy, but it's definitely gaining momentum and trying to gain a voice for the outdoor community. Because the tourism is larger than the pharmaceutical. It's larger than the oil and gas, but there's no voice for it. So we're trying to get a voice for it. Right. So you think that tourism in this case can be a changing factor, like has the power to promote change? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's also the angle that bringing people out into nature will make them care for it a bit more, too. Um, yeah, as, as, as people come here, they walk around the forest, they're going to care about it and they're going to think about it a bit more than if they just stayed in the city and never experienced it. But, yeah, I, I mean, we're definitely... Uh, I was talking with a ski company that's very conscious of their actions and trying to figure out how they can be better. And there's definitely some serious momentum happening after all the climate marches and just, just how it's such a serious topic right now. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have advice for tourists that might be coming to BC. 
um, for how they can minimize their impact and make decisions like within the tourism industry that is um, going to have the least impact or minimal impact. I mean, we all talk about offsets. So obviously the first thing you can do once you fly is to pay for some offsets. And really offsets is a band-aid. It, it, it's a way to just make sure that you're investing some stuff and putting some money towards some good projects, usually in the third world. So uh, right off the bat, just offsetting is, is fantastic. Um, I just traveled down to Utah and I had to fly there because I didn't have enough time. I had some meetings and I landed and I rented an electric car and, you know, trying to find those options that are available to make it a little bit better. And that, that was super fun, especially because the electric car was a Tesla. Super exciting. But, um, yeah, I think and it's just looking at the options and then, you know, when you're looking at, say, where you're going to stay, I, there's more and more options that, available that will be, you know, car, uh, net zero houses or places that just have a much lower footprint, environmental places that you can stay at and just kind of, if you start investing and supporting all these companies that are acting the right way, they're going to increase and it's going to be much more rampant in the future. So I think, you know, looking at that and obviously, you know, LA skiing and stuff like that aren't great, but there's there's certain companies that are looking to make their footprint better and just, just invest in, I guess, in companies that have the same values as you do and are looking for ways to be better. Do you want to share with us some of your own projects? Plug some things? Um, yeah, I mean, my latest project is called Electric Greg. Electric Greg. I just finished the movie for it, and it's the, I've climbed and skied, summited 100 summits electrically, and just kind of I'm just trying to push that idea and the, really the main idea is just that we can all be a little bit better. There's eco-anxiety in the world. You read newspapers, you see everything that's happening and it, and it can kind of make you anxious and, and because we're hypocrites, you feel like you shouldn't do anything. But I think the best way to battle that anxiety is to act. And once you start acting, it, it starts feeling better and you know you can definitely put your actions and then your voice to good causes that'll end up empowering you and making you feel better against this tide of um, climate change that we're all witnessing. Um, we're going to share links to everything in the show notes so that people can hopefully get to know you a little better through your site and your film. I'm excited to see that actually. Thanks again, Greg, for coming on the pod. It was great to have you. No problem. It was a pleasure to chat. Alpaca Pals, we hope that you've enjoyed this two-part series on sustainable travel. I've definitely learned a few things, and I hope that you have too. Have you Yeah, I've really learned a lot of things. Sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're trolling me. Go for it. Alpaca Pals, we hope that you've been... And... Can you stop? Annie, get out of there. One second. Okay. Alpaca Pals, we hope that you've enjoyed this two-part series on sustainable travel. I've definitely learned a few things, and I hope that you have too. And don't worry, we're going to circle back to this discussion again in the future. A special thanks goes out to both Evelina Uderdahl and Greg Hill, for sharing their experiences with us and taking the time to educate us. Alpaca My Bags is hosted and written by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lore here in Toronto. Now, if you learned something from this episode or another one of our episodes, leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback and your reviews help us to gain more visibility on the podcast charts. 
All right, alpaca pals, I hope you get to alpaca your bags again soon. And if you can, take that train instead of the plane. Ciao.